All right, so if you've got your Bibles open, we are in Titus. Well, this is a pastoral letter, which means it is written by a pastor to a pastor. Titus was a gentleman who was serving the Lord in a small town called Crete. These individuals, these believers who lived there, were trying to live out their faith in a place that was largely godless, a place where people did not care about the things of the Lord. And so this letter has a strong emphasis on the passing on of discipleship from one person to another person, from one generation to another generation, and how that process is preserved through accountable leadership that God has put in place to help the church be what it is supposed to be. So Titus is only three chapters long. It's a very short little book. It's a a great book to just sit down in one sitting and read the whole thing through if you've got time in your devotional schedule this week as you're seeking the Lord God on your own. We would encourage you to sit down with this book and just read it from, from first word to the last word. The first chapter... Titus is told to establish godly leadership by appointing more qualified elders in the church so that there will be many leaders who are ready to teach, who are ready to instruct and correct and to encourage and to exhort the people of Crete. When people try to lead the church away from what is truth, from the true gospel message of Scripture, Paul says, step in and set them straight. Do not let that happen. Hold tightly to the true gospel that has been preached to establish that church. This is a serious business. Pointing people towards the truth means that we have to do battle against what is wrong, what is deceitful, what is erroneous. So chapter 1 talks about leadership and establishing that leadership and its purpose. Chapter 3, the last chapter of the book of Titus, The Apostle Paul instructs Titus to obey and respect the authorities that God has allowed to rule over the church. So the people in Crete needed to learn to respond well to the leadership that God had supplied for them. He encourages that church to be diligent to stop dissension before it threatens the church and damages the church and even threatens to rip it apart through division of of idea, through division of teaching, through unresolved conflict. There's a lot of great leadership wisdom. And in the center of this book, in chapter 2, sandwiched between chapter 1 and chapter 3, Paul describes how different types of people who are attending that church, who are a part of that body of believers, play different roles in strengthening the church's true witness. The church does not just consist of a bunch of leaders who are the voice and everyone else just is tagging along. A church is a body made up of individual parts that together testify to the goodness of God's grace. And so in chapter 2, we hear instruction to young people and how they are to hold themselves in truth. We hear instructions to those who are even in servanthood or were slaves, how despite their terrible circumstances, how they too could trust in the Lord and represent God even in their humble means. Each are instructed how they might glorify the Lord in their particular situation in life. But the chapter opens by describing the roles that older men and older women in particular are to play in the edification of the church, in the example they are to set for others. On Mother's Day a few weeks back, we examined uh, verses 3 through 5 of Titus chapter 2 
and talked about the role that older women can play in the lives of the younger women in the church and what a great impact they can have, how God can use them to set the, the standard of holiness in the lives of these young women and how he can use them to mentor and urge them on to greater holiness. And today we're doing it in a little bit reverse order because in our calendar, Mother's Day falls before Father's Day. Because it is Father's Day today, we're going to go back to that second chapter of Titus and we're going to look at the first two verses that happen to give us instruction about how godly men are to set the tempo for other younger men in the church. And so if you've got your Bibles open, I'm going to read for us today verses 1 and 2 to see some of the characteristics of a godly man. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Let's pray together as we ask God to let our hearts be ready for what we're going to learn today. God, we praise you for your word, and we ask that you would help us to be soft-hearted, I ask, Lord God, that we would not come in here with a stiff neck, but that we would rather be malleable, that we would be ready for you to shape us into whatever picture of a man you want us to be. Lord, I pray that we would be humble before your word and that we would be glad to give you the keys to whatever small kingdom we're a part of. Lord, let us, let us respond to your truth today in obedience. Let us do it with joy and gladness. I pray that as you shape us, that as you press us into the image of Christ, we would better represent your Son, who was all things beautiful, who was so true and so good. Lord, we want to reflect your image well today. So God, help this scripture uh, to tune our hearts to sing your praise. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, as we look at these scriptures, we're going to be thinking about fatherhood because it's Father's Day. But in order to be a good father, you've got to be a good man. So it makes sense that we would find a passage of Scripture and focus in on what it means to be a godly man, to be a man that sets an example for others, to be a man that represents the Lord well in this world. You don't have to be a father to learn from this passage. These attributes are desirable for men because they are godly attributes. They are the attributes of God. And so even as a woman, we can look at the things that we're going to learn about today and think those are probably things I should be focused on as well. You don't even have to be a man to learn from these passages of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for the whole church, for teaching, for edification, for exhortation. So I'm hoping and trusting that the Word is going to make its impact on us today as we study it together. The Apostle Paul begins the chapter by telling his dear friend Titus that he has to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He's encouraging this young pastor that he must preach sound doctrine in the church to prepare the people that he is ministering to to represent the Lord God well. Immediately following that, he begins to show Titus a number of characteristics that need to define the various people groups that make up the church in the area of Crete that Titus was serving in. And so from that intro, we see that doctrine and personhood are inseparable concepts. Doctrine impacts the way people are, and the way people are should be defined by their doctrine. Your doctrine is the specific things that you believe about the important matters of God and life. The things that you believe about the God you worship. How you see the Lord. How you interpret the Scripture. How you understand salvation. 
How you comprehend your sin and its impact on your life, on the world around you, and especially on your relationship to God. Doctrine is how you believe about godly things and how you live those beliefs out. Because friends, if you believe it, you will live it out. We tell the truth with our actions a lot better than we do with our words. And so if you believe you say a thing, but you cannot or will not live it out, at some point, you have to step back and question whether you honestly believe that thing or not. Our hope and prayer is that as we all confess our belief in Jesus Christ and the things that He has given to us in Scripture, that we would then live a life that is not hypocritical, a life that does not... Uh, differ greatly from the words of God, but that instead our lives would begin more and more each day to match the things that Christ has revealed to us in His great word. So doctrine and personhood are closely united. They are linked together. Sound doctrine is right belief lived out in a faithful way. Being a godly man doesn't automatically make you a good dad, but it's a good foundation to build on. Fathers who hope to honor God in their calling of parenthood as they raise their daughters and sons would benefit from letting the Holy Spirit refine them by the word into the kind of people that God wants their sons to grow up into, to the kind of people their daughters will hopefully one day aspire to be. And so we are given here a short list of six important characteristics of an exemplary biblical man. And we're going to go through this list and we're going to take some time to focus on each of these terms so that we understand what God is, is aiming our hearts toward as He encourages us with His Scripture. First of all, we are told that the older men are to be sober. The older men are to be sober. Now there are at least two senses in which this idea of sobriety rings true. The first is a little bit more obvious than the second. Literally, to be sober as a godly man, means that you should not be given to chemicals that impair your ability to think clearly. If you want to be sober, that means you're going to be on the lookout for any substance that might be taken in by your body that would keep you from thinking in a clear and defined manner. The sin addressed here, by the way, is not directly alcoholism or addiction itself, although that would certainly come under this category. The sin is letting something you take into your body impede your mature and steady mind. So the application of this is actually much greater than just alcoholism or addiction. Someone might say to themselves, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not an addict, so I guess he's not talking about me here. This sobriety is about those people who struggle in that way. But that's not actually the right question to be asked here. You shouldn't ask, am I an alcoholic or am I an addict? The question is, do I drink or smoke, or eat, or use anything that distorts the way that I see the world around me, that hinders me from seeing it in clarity and in truth. That shifts my judgment. Anything that alters my ability to process and make sharp decisions informed by the Word of God. Do I let anything like that come into my body? thus putting me off track potentially from following God the way that I should. So they're not talking directly about addiction or alcoholism. What they're saying here is that being high is wrong. That being drunk is wrong. That being buzzed is wrong. As sinful men, we acknowledge 
that we are born with a heart that is already from the, from, from the delivery room prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. Even in those times when I have a clear and sober mind, even when there is no substance that's throwing me off my understanding of God's scripture, I might very well still struggle to do the thing that I know I ought to do. It will still be a battle for me to refrain from what I know is wrong. So why would I in any way, shape, or form hinder myself from holiness more than I need to by taking a substance in that's going to alter the way that I perceive God's word and follow it faithfully? I need every ounce of my faculties to see the battle for holiness that is at hand and to ready myself to take every thought captive to the glory of God my Father. So for, for me to willingly forfeit even a small percentage of what limited discernment I have could have serious consequences in my life that could lead to dishonor to the God that, whose name I am called by. If I desire to fight the good fight of dying to myself and taking up my cross daily so that I can follow Jesus and be like Him, I must keep my limited wits about me. Now there is, of course, a difficult conversation to be had about how this aspect of sobriety applies to things like medication. And that conversation is getting more and more complicated as recreational drugs are now being applied in the medical arena. And many are beginning to use things like marijuana to address some medical issues that they have. If you have a serious health need, and the only solution to that health need is a medication with side effects that hinder your sobriety, what are you to do? If taking that medication makes it very difficult for you to walk the straight line of obeying the Lord and representing Him in a holy and godly manner, what are you to do? The scripture does not draw a definitive line in the sand that shows in every circumstance what is okay and what is not okay. But for those who put Christ first, it should not be that hard to determine by prayer and by meditation whether the benefit of a particular medication is worth the negative cognitive side effects of taking that medication. And so I want to give you a, a testimony by example. A few months ago, I got an interesting phone call from a sister, a believer that wanted to meet with me for counsel. She had been experiencing some very drastic pain in her body and uh, for a long time. And the doctors had tried a number of different things to try to solve that problem. And time and time again, each of their solutions was less than a solution. Each of their solutions had some kind of negative side effect. The one that seemed to work the best was disabilitating because it knocked her out for 20 hours out of the day. She could only be awake for four hours and then the sleepiness that was caused by that medication caused her to fall asleep. And so the doctors shifted course again and again until they settled on a narcotic that was killing the pain very effectively in her. And so you might think that that phone call was a phone call of rejoicing of praising the Lord that God had found a solution to her pain. But as I came and met with that sister and as she counseled with me, she said, Pastor, I just cannot feel right about taking this medication because when I don't get it, I feel like I can't have joy. And I am concerned because I feel as though this, medi this medication that <clears throat> is finally stopping my pain is preventing me from getting my joy from God alone. And I'm worried that I'm becoming too addictive 
to this, this chemical and I don't know whether I should stop taking it or not. This is weighty stuff. This is, this is doctrine meeting action and personhood, isn't it? And so we sat that day and we prayed and I asked several diagnostic questions. Does taking this medication cause you to struggle to do what is right in your life? Does taking this medication, does it cause you to have the kind of dependence that we should only have on Jesus Christ? When it is taken away from you, do you fall instantly into patterns of sin? And as we, we spoke through these things and as we prayed and meditated on it, we took a couple weeks to really fast through it and to think about it before she decided <clears throat> that despite the pain it was going to cause her, she wanted to have her right mind more than she wanted to have a comfortable existence. And she stepped back to her doctor's office and said, doctors, I, I really appreciate your willingness to change course with me on this, and I know that we're having great results, but because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I cannot continue to take this drug. I am too deeply addicted to it, even now at the beginning stages, and I'm afraid that it is, it is overtaking the place of my God in my life, and so I need to find a different way to manage this pain. These are difficult questions that we have to ask ourselves, but they're the kind of questions that someone who puts the Lord first has got to think through as they're dealing with this admonition <clears throat> that godly men in particular, but godly people in general, are to have a sober mind. So Paul's warning to godly men concerns drunkenness, not necessarily addiction, but addiction by extension is wrong because it means that you are now falling into that pattern of sin so frequently that your body is adjusting to that chemical. It's learning to actually depend upon it so that the sinful behavior is being perpetuated and the ability to repent and to turn away from that sin is becoming more and more difficult with time. Each drink, each hit, each pill is making it more and more difficult to repent and turn away and find your joy in Christ alone. Idolatry, of course, is the inevitable end of unrepentant addiction. Addiction can be some, become so powerful to us that it begins to be our highest desire, our highest aim, and everything else begins to slowly be ordered underneath our desire, our compulsion to get that chemical. Suddenly, the, the family that used to be up here is now somewhere down here on the list, and you find yourself behaving in ways that hurts your family that alienates your family, that deceives your family. You perhaps might even steal from your family to feed your addiction. And so you see that addiction is, at its heart and core, the sin of idolatry with chemicals attached to it. So there is a legitimate second sense also to which we are to be sober. Although we must acknowledge this idea that the Christian, though we have been given some liberty to to enjoy a, a drink from time to time if it's not affecting our ability to understand. Though we've been given that Christian liberty, we must be diligent to not become drunk, to not let the cognitive skills that God has given to us begin to be on hold for a time. There's a legitimate second sense in which men are to be sober. And that is the figurative sense of sobriety. A godly man should be committed to thinking clearly even if the chemicals that threaten their thinking and reasoning didn't come out of a bottle or out of a cabinet or off the street corner. The mind of man can produce some pretty powerful chemicals on its own that might impact the way we interpret our environment 
and treat other people. So a godly man is also someone who is committed to letting their faith in Jesus Christ control their own emotions and their own passions. Emotions and passions, both of which have the power to drastically impact the way we deal with the people around us. It is possible to be dry and yet not sober, folks. Anger, lustfulness, greed for things that we do not have, hunger for power and control, the draw of gluttony, unreasonable fear and anxiety. Each of these are states of mind that can cloud our judgment and impair our ability to think in godly ways. And we've got to be diligent to identify these things and to learn how to regain control when our body wants to spiral us out of control. Thinking must be truthful, and thinking in truthful ways must be an, a priority for those who want to honor Christ with their lives. Seeing things for what they truly are and calling them by their real names. Being able to identify sin and calling it as such instead of pretending that it's something less than sin is critical. Taking our thoughts captive when anger would cause us to act in hate rather than love is an expression of sober thinking. Taking our passion captive when we are drawn by our flesh to satisfy unhealthy sexual desires, to be able to know that feeling is wrong and to halt our compulsion towards acting upon it. Taking our emotions captive when we begin to see ourselves inflated by pride or we begin to see ourselves crippled by despair, to be able to step out and say, this is not what God wants for my life. Though my heart feels this way, I must learn to tell my heart no. I must learn to let Christ be in control of who I am despite the difficult circumstances I have found myself in, despite the way my heart is acting in crisis mode right now. I must let the Lord of all heaven and earth be the Lord even of my own heart. Friends, there is nothing more sobering than coming to terms with your own sinfulness. When we recognize our own depravity and we can stand in honesty and say, I am someone who struggles with lying. I am someone who struggles with a bad temper. I am one who struggles with selfishness. I am one who struggles to not manipulate the people around me. When we can come to terms with those things and identify these sins and confess them to our God, and pray that His Holy Spirit would provide the strength we need to overcome, then we don't have to be the kind of people that are constantly spiraling out of control and are led whichever way our heart might take us, but we can instead be a people that are anchored to the Word of God and directed by His goodwill. Dads, we need to think soberly if we're to walk in the calling that God has given to us. If you are a father to children and a husband to a wife, then your calling involves protection for those individuals. You are called to protect your wife and to protect your children. If you are living parts of your days in a state of uncontrol, if you are allowing some chemical into your life where you are not right-minded to help your family in a time of need or, or crisis, if you are the kind of man who lets his heart carry him away 
to the point where he's not thinking straightly, how can you expect to protect those who God has put into your care? We are called to instruct our wives and our children, to lead them in the word of God. We spoke at length about this yesterday in our uh, parenting seminar where Pastor Paul shared about family worship times and how we should be daily seeking God together as a family. That that's just not the church's job, but that as a family, we should be seeking the face of God through singing praises to Him and, and praying and looking at the Word of God together and studying it. But how are we going to instruct our family in the Word of God if a, a good percentage of the time our minds are not even right enough to determine what the Word says? Fatherhood is a calling to provide. And I've heard sad stories of men who could not provide for their family because their addictions or their lack of temperance kept them from being able to hold down a job so that they could provide for the needs of their family. And, and friends, fellow fathers, your highest calling is to love your wife and your children as Christ loved the church. And so if you're going to love them well, doesn't it make sense that you must have your mind under control, that you have your emotions in check, that you are not allowing some foreign substance to come in and dictate how you will act or how you will not act around your kids and around your wife. Sobriety is so critical to the calling of fatherhood and of course it is fundamental to being a godly man. The second thing that Titus is instructed to teach his people is that older men are to be reverent. Older men are to be reverent. Now, reverence is not a character quality that many men are actively striving for in our day and age. If you asked, if you asked men today what kind of characteristics make a real man, reverence would probably not be one of the ones they put on their list of top tens. A lot of dads in particular think that what their kids really need is a good friend, an entertainer, someone to make them laugh and smile, someone to lighten their day and make them happy. Sometimes that might be what your children need. And the joys of fatherhood, without a doubt, will include times of, of laughter and joy. But that is not our primary responsibility to our children, fathers. We are not to be their live-in comedian as much as we are to be the father that directs their steps and guides their paths. To be reverent means to be serious about the right things. To be serious about the right things. That means we have to have a, a gravity of, of seriousness to us where we know when, when to settle in, when to focus, and when to think about something with a meditative mind, when to not let it become goofy or silly. We need to know how to focus and set aside the things that are trivial so that we can give our attention and honor to things that really matter in life. Psalm 89.7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence to all those around him. So, men, does your life show a picture of one who has a right, honorable fear of God in his life? Dads in particular, if your children were to mimic the way that you treat God and handle Him, would they be treating God reverently? Would they know how to focus on Him, when to stay quiet, when to think? And this... This is expressed in many different avenues of our faith. Is the Word of God holy to us? Is Scripture more than just a number of bumper sticker 
cliches that we tend to throw out when they're convenient for us? Or is the Word of God something that we depend on for our wisdom? As a dad, do you believe you could do your job well without this book? Because God says that you cannot. We cannot bear good fruit to Him unless we are abiding in the vine. And Jesus Christ gives us the word of life through the Scripture. So this, the very nourishment, the very bread that He gives to us comes through His word. Is the word of God holy? Are we reverent towards His revelation? Is the Lord's day holy to us because of what Jesus did on that day? The fact that He was willing to come and die on the cross for our sin and rise again on the third day? Or is Sunday more reverent because that's when our favorite football team plays? Are we reverent towards what really matters? Have we been able to rightly divide the things that are critically important and the things that we can take or leave? Is marriage sacred to us as men of God? Are we reverent towards the covenantal vows that we have made to our wife to love her and her alone, to desire her and her alone, and to be a godly example of what marriage can be to our children? so that when they one day grow up and seek a spouse of their own, that they would have a model that they can refer to that is a model of Scripture lived out in their mom and their dad. <clears throat> is prayer a time of reverence for you? Is it more than just vain repetition where you repeat the, the same four requests over and over again, day by day, with every meal? Or are you sincerely seeking this dynamic God who is unique in so many ways? Are you spending time with him to know him so that he might take your dreams and make them more like his own dreams? Are you reverent in prayer? To be reverent means to be serious about the right things. It also means to be serious at the right times. To be reverent doesn't mean that we never crack a smile or that we never roll in the aisles. There are definitely times of rejoicing and exuberance and laughter and smiles. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and 4 says, you probably recognize this from the popular song in the 60s. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So men, we've got to determine to be able to identify when it is appropriate for us to lighten the mood with a word of encouragement, with a joke, uh, with, with, a, with a funny observation, and when it would be better to let a moment be silent, when it would be better to let a moment stay heavy so that the truth of God's word might rest upon our hearts, so that its meaning might sink into who we are. This is a skill that we must train ourselves to be able to identify the times in life when it is best to let the glory of God shine through in silence and in seriousness, and when it is time to rejoice in exuberance and let the Lord put a smile upon our face. A good sense of humor is a tremendous blessing. It can put overreacting in its right place. Sometimes we make things more serious than they are, and a joke can often remind us that we, we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously, that we serve a God who is sovereign and who is bigger than our, our circumstances. A joke can help break someone free from unreasonable sadness. We can get swept up in the drama of our lives and we can get into a rut and sometimes a brother or sister who comes along and just shares a light-hearted notion can put a smile back on our face and remind us that we don't have to mourn day in and day out. It can enhance our feeling of camaraderie and stir up affections among family and friends. 
But we must not, for the sake of a passing laugh, be willing to do the things that will compromise our ability to lead others. We cannot, we cannot, for the passing laugh, compromise our ability to be taken seriously by those who are going to be depending on us. So reverence is a high calling for manhood. Thirdly, Titus is instructed that older men should be temperate. Temperate. Temperate describes a man who does not command himself, but rather is commanded by God. A temperate man is one who can let go of control of himself and allow the Lord God to call the shots in his lives. One who is able to stem the tide of his emotion and harness it in such a way that it can be used for God's good and noble purposes. Some people think of the word temperate and they think balanced. And there's, there's a good connection there. We don't want to think about balance in the Eastern way of the term. You know, Eastern philosophy says that balance must bring everything into some kind of order where this thing is as equal to this thing as it is to that thing, where in reality our balance is to put the things that matter where they belong and put the things that don't matter where they belong. God is definitely to be weighted in our life more than other things. Our family is to be weighted in life more than other things. The Word of God is to be weighted in life more than other things. And so Christian balance doesn't look exactly like the other balances that people seek in the world. To be temperate doesn't mean to be vanilla either. It doesn't mean that you're just as boring as can be, that you're always just right down the middle as far as every characteristic. To be godly is one of the most unique and rare things there is to be in this world. There are very few godly people in this world today. So if you strive to be temperate, you'll be doing something that very few other people in this world are putting effort into doing. To be temperate is to live in such a way that things are, that are not important to God become the things that are not important to us. And the things that are important to God become our main focus and our desire and our drive. We have a great example of this in the life of the disciple Peter, who desperately needed to add temperance to his repertoire of faithfulness. Peter was a faithful man. He loved the Lord God. He desired to do what was right. He anticipated the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, he recognized him. His heart was soft to Jesus Christ. He left all to follow him. And yet there were times when our brother Peter had an emotional roller coaster reaction to the things that happened to him in his life. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his 11 disciples, before the night he was betrayed, Judas the twelfth entered in with a garrison of Roman soldiers and they approached Jesus for the sincere purpose of betraying him. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He was not caught off guard by this. Peter had been warned that something like this was going to happen and yet his emotions welled up in him. His great love for Christ kept him from being temperate in the moment and what did Peter do? He drew his sword out and tried to strike one of the guards who was coming to apprehend Jesus. He's a fisherman, not a soldier. So instead of losing his head, that guard only lost his ear. And Jesus immediately stopped Peter and called for him to be temperate. And in consideration, Jesus even picked up the ear of this guard who we think was called Malchus and healed the very guard who was coming to take him away and put him to death wrongfully. Jesus was temperate in that moment. 
Though we know he was emotional, though we know he strove with the Lord in prayer the hours leading up to that moment, so anxious about what was to come that he sweat blood before the Lord God. He was a man of emotions. He was not a robot. But those emotions that he felt were kept under check because there was a higher calling in his life than his feelings. Peter needed to learn that. I think later on in his life he did, in large part, learn that. And many of us need to learn that as well. A godly man is a temperate man. Now the next three characteristics are linked by the Greek word hugenontas. Hugenontas, if you look at it on paper, looks like hygiene. What does hygiene refer to? It refers to health. And when these three words are linked by this word health, that means that a good man should seek to be healthy in the following three areas of his life. And these three last characteristics round out our list. Now remember, when I say the word healthy, many of us are conditioned to immediately think about how much a guy can bench press or how fast a man can run the 40-yard dash. Whether he's got a six-pack or a keg under his shirt, that's what we think about when we think healthy. But physical health isn't totally important to us, friends, and that's something we need to grab onto. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-8. through 8. The Apostle Paul, speaking to another friend who happens to pastor a church, this one in Ephesus, says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, okay, we see right there that going to the gym is not worthless. Watching your diet is not worthless. Going running from time to time is not worthless. It is of some value, but look at the qualification that comes right after it. Godliness is of value in every way. There is no limit to the value of godliness, friends, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The hours that you spend in the gym will make your 80 years here on this earth a little nicer. But they're not going to affect your eternity whatsoever. So let's be careful that we don't put all our focus in becoming healthy in ways that don't really matter in the long run. But that priority is always put on the spiritual. We should not be skipping our are feeding in the Word to go and, and, and eat a diet of, of health foods or to spend all of our time in the gym so we can look nicer to the mirror while our heart is being neglected. To that end, a godly man is someone who is making an effort to be healthy first in faith. Healthy in faith. Insomuch as mankind was created as a being who must walk through life without perfect knowledge, of everything that he sees and hears and experiences, we are always going to have to have some measure of faith. When the Word says that God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts, it's very clearly pointing to the fact that He is omniscient. He knows all things. And our knowledge is extremely limited. Because we don't have the diversity and the scope of knowledge that God has, there will be parts of our experience in reality that will stay in the dark for us. They will have to be going on behind the scenes of our comprehension and understanding. We were designed to be a people of faith, a, depend, a dependent people that have to trust in the Lord God who alone knows all. 
Faith is not just an easier way to live for those who don't want to take the time and effort to be scientific. The most rational of minds must make sense of what they don't know using all the facts and the data that they do know about the world that they've seen, the world that they have heard, that they have tasted, that they have felt and smelled with their five senses. But while every man without exception has some degree of faith, not every man has a faith that would be described as a healthy faith. And so let's talk about that for a minute. What marks a healthy faith in a man of God? A healthy faith, first of all, trusts what is worthy of faith. You might write in there on the side, the object of faith is critical. The thing that we aim our trust at must be worthy of our trust. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2 is a passage of Scripture that's been on my mind and heart a lot lately. I wonder if God is using any Scriptures like that for you where you keep seeing a certain verse pop up again and again and you keep seeing how different parts of that verse are applying to the life that you're living before God. This passage says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this description gives to us a picture of one who is striving for a prize, one who wants to complete an important and defined task, this race that is set before him. Verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The object of our faith as Christians is not some theory. It's not some philosophy that someone has worked out over time and debate with others. It is the very revelation of God to man. The object of our faith is His Son, Jesus Christ, who is alone the author and the finisher of our faith. That means He begins it and He completes it. All of our faith is wrapped up in this one man. A man who was absolutely perfect in all action, who was completely faithful in every thought, word, and deed. This is the one in whom we put our faith and trust. There was no hidden scandal that was revealed about this man later, though those who like to re-engineer history have liked to try to make it seem as though there were interesting facts and details about Jesus' life that nobody knew about until now. Those are all fabrications. Jesus was in all ways tempted as we are, and yet he never sinned. That's who I want my faith to be in. I don't want my faith to be in some person who might be better than the other options I have around me, but at the core is still a human being who will eventually let me down in some way, shape, or form. The object of our faith must be the one Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, which means that we are not trusting in Him alone. And your faith helps my faith be stronger. I hope you know that. The way that you believe in your God and the way that you continually put your eyes on Christ and follow after Him to the exclusion of your 
other options and freedoms, the way that you trust in this Jesus makes me stronger. And I pray that my faith in Christ helps you to be stronger as well. That is what this cloud of witnesses refers to, the fact that God has made us to be a part of his holy church, the bride that he cares so dearly for. And so this healthy faith should be pursued together by each of us in the context of his church. A healthy faith is not just on the right object, but it is also a faith that is built on a firm foundation and is not easily shaken. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20-21, through 21, Paul writes, O Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and the idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This is the second passage where we've been warned that not every claim to truth is real truth. We've got to learn to divide between what Scripture says and what people say Scripture says. Chapter 20, or verse 21 says, By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Timothy is reminded by Paul in this passage that we must strive for good, solid, dependable doctrine. And that's going to take some time, friends. It is not just something that we just grab from others and we accept but in order to know that doctrine is right, that means we've got to examine it for ourselves. I'm glad if there are people in your lives that you trust, that you are hoping will feed good doctrine to you, but you must not remi- uh, rely on them to hold the spoon every single meal. You've got to learn to pick up the spoon and feed yourself at times too, to open the Word of God and to rightly divide it, to care enough about it that you won't just take someone's word for it, but you want to see why. You want to see how. You want to see where in Scripture and how specifically God has showed you that this doctrine is the right way to think. We don't want to just find some man that we're impressed with and follow after that man. Instead, we want to find these men through whom God himself has spoken and let the word speak for itself. So our healthy faith is built on a firm foundation that is not easily shaken because the word of God is eternal It does not change, and it has always professed what is rightly true to those who follow after God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down by this world and the things in it, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, of the, in the, body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. That's a description of someone who is built on a firm foundation. The things of this world that threaten our happiness that compromise our circumstances will not cause our faith to fall because it is built on something that cannot be defeated. It is built on something stronger than adamantium. Christ will not falter. A healthy faith works to know what it can know and it doesn't become discouraged by what it can't know. That is the third point I want to make about a healthy faith today. A healthy faith works to know what it can know and it doesn't become discouraged by what it can't know. Remember, we are designed to be a people of faith. 
So you will not ever get to a point in your life, at least not on this side of heaven, where you get it completely. There will be aspects of the mighty God that you come and sing worship to that will baffle you until the day you enter the grave because you are designed to operate on faith with Him. That does not mean that we stay like little babies for the rest of our life and feed on the simplest of truths, the, the milk that is so easy to take in and leave steak to others. No, rather, we should strive to grow in all ways that we can to learn more and more about this mighty God who so impresses us. But we must temper that desire to know with a humility that understands we will never know it all. And frankly, friends, we don't need to because we are dependent on God and He supplies our every need. So we must have, men, of faith, a healthy faith, a faith that is good and strong and true. We also must have a healthy love. Given the bold statement that Paul makes at the end of the famous love chapter that many of you are so familiar with, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, it says, And now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Considering those words, it should not surprise us that having a healthy faith should be connected so closely in Paul's letter to Titus to having a healthy love. The love that Paul is talking about here is agape love. There are three primary Greek words used in the scripture to describe what we would call love in the New Testament. English love is very limited. And I want to, I want to bring each of these up just briefly. And we've talked about some of this before, but it's beneficial to review. Phileo is a Greek word that means brotherly love. This love is a good love. It is in many ways a safe love. It is a love of something that is like you. When you find somebody who shares qualities that you have, perhaps you are connected by family. Maybe you share the same hometown, or you went to the same school, or you work at the same factory, and so there is now something between you where you can make a connection. A bridge has been built. And so phileo love is a good love, but it is not a perfect love because it is limited in its scope and its range. It doesn't apply to everybody. It only really applies to those who you can call brother. The ones with whom you have something in common will receive this kind of phileo love from you. You're generally not going to show phileo love to somebody you absolutely don't know because you don't know if they're on your side or not. You don't know if they are friendly to you. You don't know if they are your brother. So phileo love is good. It is safe, but it is limited in its range. Eros is the second kind of love most frequently used in Scripture. It is a passionate love. It is a love of fire, a love that is intoxicating. This love is far more risky than phileo love. It is also more exciting. It is more dramatic in its effect upon the lover. But this love is still very limited. Whereas phileo love is limited in its range... Eros' love is limited in its ability to endure. It does not last. Eros' love, by its very definition, can only sustain itself for a time because our passions do not persist forever. We see this very clearly in the way that we are attracted to something so diligently for a time. It becomes 
interesting to us. We want to examine it and learn all that we can about it. It becomes obsessive to us. And then you look back on your past and two years have gone by and now you don't care about that thing at all. In your closet is a whole bunch of items or books about that thing and something else has grabbed your attention now. You're excited about something else in life. It doesn't last. Many relationships are sadly built on eros that at the beginning is passionate and fiery and fun but over time must shift to a greater love or else that passion will dwindle and you'll become less and less satisfied by the thing that used to satisfy you. Which brings us to the third kind of love. And this is the love that godly men need to strive to live by regularly. And that is agape love. Agape love does not suffer from the limited range of phileo. It does not suffer from the limited endurance of eros. Agape love is a steadfast, faithful love that is not fickle. Its goal and aim is not to get from others all that you can, but rather to give. Agape is the kind of love that God demonstrates to us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. He didn't do that to benefit Himself so much as He did that to benefit you and me. God would be perfectly content to not have one of us in heaven. Did you know that? God does not need our company to be fulfilled. He is perfect in His independence and His dependence within the Trinity. But God so wants to bless us that in agape, He has loved us faithfully by covenant and sent His Son to give us grace. A godly man learns to love others for their benefit and not only for his own benefit. He learns to love others for the benefit of his God who is most important to him and not just because he's going to get something back from it. There are two phases of that ultimate healthy love. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That means that our love for God, our agape for Him, must supersede all other loves, that He must be the object of our favor, of our desire, that we should seek Him more than we seek anything else. And the second phase is like the first, but its object is different. To love your neighbor as you love yourself means that agape is what we are to give to those around us. And anyone to whom you give agape love can function as your neighbor. So God is calling us, men, to to work this love out in, in our lives and in the lives of others. And the last thing that God calls us to here is a healthy patience, men. A healthy patience. I know this final attribute's very difficult for men. I think in large part because men like to play God. It's, let's admit that right up front, that guys like to be in control. We like to play the part that God plays. We like to have the kind of dominion that only He is supposed to have. And so men tend to want to call the shots. They want to set the schedule. They see a problem and they want to immediately solve it so that it no longer holds them back. We develop a goal. We want to immediately achieve it. And when forces or powers greater than ourselves step in the way of achieving those ends, men quickly become little boys again and lose their sense of patience, don't we? And we begin to let our hurt feelings dictate the way we deal with the people around us. But we are called here by the word 
to have a healthy patience that recognizes we're not only made to reflect the image of God that we like to reflect, the power and the dominion and the strength and the knowledge, but we are also called to reflect the humble attributes of God, His beautiful patience toward us. And so, men, if you want to be godly, you must be godly in reflecting all of your Creator. Dads, you know how important this is. When we are sober-minded, when we are temperate, when we are reverent, when we have healthy faith, when we are loving rightly, then patience comes much more easily to us. So the things we learned earlier in this sermon are foundational to the idea that we might walk in such a way that we would strive with those who are not yet where they need to be like God strives with us. Let us not forget, gentlemen, that if we really want to reflect the image of God, we need to reflect not only His power, but also His merciful patience to us. Psalm 145.8, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. 1 Timothy 1.16, But I, meaning Paul, received mercy for this very reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect Patience. Who has perfect patience? Jesus, the object of our faith. As an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Jesus' patience is a perfect example to us of waiting on the Lord and trusting Him to bring about the best ends in the pos best possible timing. What a blessing that we serve a God of unparalleled patience, that He is willing to wait for our sinful hearts to turn. But I, I pray and hope, friends, that we would not be so bold as to think that that patience does not have its rightful end. We are called to be patient as long as necessary because we are not the omniscient ones. We are not the all-knowing ones. We must wait for the God who has dominion over our lives to tell us when we should stop or when we should go. But God's patience has a definitive end. And so we must realize that when Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, <clears throat> not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We must read those words and realize that what the Apostle Paul is writing in that letter is that there is patience that you are experiencing right now, that God does not deal with you in a wrathful way yet, but don't think that that patience is going to last forever. That patience is there so that you will see the love of God, so that you will recognize His mercy, so that you will be urged and you will turn from your sin, that you will repent from your rebellion from Him, and that you will benefit from that patience by trusting in Him once and for all. There is an end to the patience of God. He is holy and, sin and sinless, Wickedness and rebellion are detestable to him and he will one day punish them in full. This is in some ways terrifying to us because sinfulness, wickedness, and rebellion is something we're all guilty of. What a blessing that God is patient. Let us not take that for granted but seek him for salvation today. If this patient God is the king of your life, then I pray today these attributes of His that can be reflected in us when we trust in Him as the object of our faith will become your prayerful hope as you seek to be godly men, 
godly fathers, godly disciples. Would you please bow your heads as we close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for all that you have given. You are a magnificent God to us and we are very grateful. Thank you, Lord, for each of the fathers in this room. We are so happy to be able to rejoice in the role that you are playing in their calling, Lord, that as they trust in you, you are doing great things in them. Father, thank you for your patience. Help us to be the kind of men that point people to you and your glory. We pray this all to your credit in Jesus' name.